I want to begin this morning by reading uh, Psalm chapter 25, verses 4 and 5. King David said this. He said, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God my Savior and my hope is in you all day long. How about you? Is your hope in the Lord all day long? Ah, just in the morning, Bob. That's, that's, you know, uh, maybe before I go to bed, I pray, you know, Lord, help me to wake up again in the morning, you know. (laughs) In this passage, King David expresses his desire for guidance and not just any guidance, guys. It was the, it was God's guidance. And rightly so. You see, life often brings a lot of right turns and left turns, doesn't it? Puts it in our path. But it is by his guidance that our Lord will help direct our paths. You know, Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him. And the way I look at it is he will direct your paths. He will make your paths straight. He will direct you in the path that you need to go. And I truly believe that. And if you were looking at our sign this morning that we had up here on the screen this morning, it, this is what it read. There was a little intersection sign there that says, it is at the intersections of life where we most need the, the guidance and the instruction that can only be found in God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's at those times when we need, we need the most guidance. So I will tell you that when I was in my early 50s, I fulfilled one of my bucket lists. How many of you have bucket lists? If you don't have a bucket list, you need to get a bucket list. Come on. Some of you just need a bucket to carry a tune in it. You know, that, that might be me. Well, I, I fulfilled one of my bucket lists in my early 50s. I got my motorcycle license. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You laugh, but I really did. <laughs> I got my motorcycle license. You know, don't get me wrong, I had ridden a lot of bikes over the years, but now I was legal <laughs> when I was out on the road. I got to be legal, you know. But it was during the classroom portion of the course that our instructor told us something very interesting that I didn't realize about, you know, motorcycle riding. And that's this. <clears throat> he told us that one of the most dangerous places on the road for a motorcyclist to be is at intersections. At intersections, yeah. He said, you always need to pay even closer attention, always watch, always scan, be aware behind you and beside you and in front of you at all times. And one of the things that he also mentioned for us is this. He said, he said you need to have a plan of action or an escape route if something goes wrong. And so he said, as you're coming to that intersection, you need to be watching, you need to be aware of what's going on around you. You need to, you need to be thinking in your mind, okay, if something happens here, how, how can I get out of this? You know, and, and especially at intersections when you're in a four lane highway and you're on the inside lane there, you know, that can be even scarier. And so you gotta really be careful. And I believe, I truly believe that's 
exactly God's message for us when it comes to our lives. You know, pay attention at the intersections of life. Keep your eyes open. Stay alert. You know, this is where God, through Jesus, will teach you some really important lessons of life, and and he'll give you the message that, that you need to hear. And I believe that. Life is a journey when Christ is leading, and our journey... Guys, our journey begins and ends at the foot of the cross, doesn't it? Every single one of our lives begins and ends at the foot of the cross. You need to keep that in mind. It's at the foot of the cross. In Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He says, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I have been crucified with Christ. Now my identity is in Jesus. Your identity is in Jesus. You know, the cross is an intersection. In fact, it's not just an intersection. It is the intersection of life. Absolutely. And God's plan from the beginning to the end has its very core the greatest intersection of all, and that intersection is the cross of Jesus Christ. I remember what Paul told us. Paul said, and if I can find it, I've got my, my Bible quite marked here with different passages, but here's what he says. This is what Paul says to us in, in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. He says this. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man. This intersection, guys, changes everything. It changes everything. For us. You know, the Lord has said that He will never leave us, that He will never walk away from us, nor keep Himself at a distance at any time, but especially in those tough times, those tough lessons of life that come our way. You know, on the contrary, He stays, He's He He stays near to us. Remember a couple weeks ago I talked about this idea that when you feel far away from God, the journey back to God is one step. That's it, one step. So he stays near, he he cares, he comforts, he ministers to us deeply and compassionately, particularly when we arrive at the intersection of life and we must decide, okay, have you ever been behind a driver that doesn't know which way to go? Doesn't it just drive you nuts? Okay, you know, and, you, and you, they're hitting on the brake and they're not sure which lane to be in and then you just got to stay back because, you know, if you don't, you're going to get in a wreck. It's kind of like that squirrel in the middle of the road, you know, which way do you go, you know? And I've had them, I've had them where they just stay there and I go right over top of them and nothing happens. And then I've had it where they've, you can hear them hit the tire. It's like, sorry, little guy. You were confused. Which way to go? You know, which way? Which way did he go? You know, Bugs Bunny. You know, which way did he go? But it is. You know, it's in those times when we have to decide which direction to go. 
And so this series that I'm going to do with you for the next few weeks is called Intersections, and it's about Christ's presence in our lives. And at those times when we are hard-pressed, how many of you are hard-pressed sometimes? How many of you feel like you get squeezed into a corner um, you're unsure about the next steps that you're going to take. You don't know what's around that next turn there, and it scares you. Hopefully, each study will bring you reassurance. We're going to talk about temptation, but we're going to talk about some other things as well. We're going to talk about shame. You know, remember the, the young man that I told you about, our good friends, some of our best friends, Ben and Robin, their, their son, who committed suicide. He did that. He hung himself because he was ashamed of himself. So we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about forgiveness. We're going to talk about a bunch of things. But hopefully each study will bring you reassurance. The intersections of life can be very painful, very frustrating, very confusing. But with Jesus leading the way, we can, every single one of us in this room, can experience victory in Jesus Christ. We can experience that victory. Jesus always leads by example, doesn't he? And, and we are going to follow his example in every single study that we do today and, and, and the few weeks to come. So Jesus leads us by example. So what I'm telling you to do is follow him closely in this journey we call life. And you won't regret it. So this morning as we begin our series here, I'm going to put us up here because I want to change this every week. But here we have temptation. I'm going to try to put it right in the middle there if I can, just for now. There we go. That's temptation this morning as we're going to talk about. You know... As we meet Christ at the intersection of temptation, what does he have to tell us here? Well, I want to begin with this. How many of you ever read um, Robert Frost, um, the, the Road Not Taken? Okay, several of you have then. You know, Robert Frost in his proverbial fork in the road, his old fork in the road, here's what he had to say. He said, two roads diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry, I could not travel both. And be one traveler, long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. When took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted where, though as for the passing there, had warned them really about the same. In other words, both paths were warned about the same, he says. And both that morning equally lay, in leaves no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day, yet knowing how ways, how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. I shall be telling this with a sigh, Somewhere, ages and ages hence, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, two roads diverge in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and it has made all the difference. It has made all the difference. 
You know, there is more than a pleasant rhyme about a walk in the woods, you know, from the road not taken. I think it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor about intersections, critical junctures that necessitate life-changing decisions. Are you going through any of those life-changing decisions right now? Maybe some of you are. Some we prepare for as, as they approach us, like marriage, a career, or a move to a new home. You know, others perhaps, even, even most maybe, intersect our lives unexpectedly. You know, they come upon us like, bam, and they're there, you know. Like the, you know, the sudden news of marital infidelity or the loss of a job or the loss of a family member or, or the loss of a good friend or maybe the loss of good health. We all face those things. We all struggle with those things. You know, but how do we make wise decisions in such critical times? How do we make those wise decisions? How do we maintain our firm standing when we've been broadsided by bad news? I'll never forget when my daughter, my daughter wrecked two vehicles in a matter of days. She, she had a deer hit her car, took it to the shop, and it was going to have to get fixed. So my wife, God bless her soul, <laughs> let our daughter use our car, our brand new car. And my daughter was going down this road and she came to this intersection. And it's one of the most dangerous intersections in Williamsport. And she pulled out in front of a Mack truck. And it broadsided her and it hit her and it sent her across the one lane over to the other two lanes that were going in the other direction. She gets out of the car. Thank goodness she could get out of the car because the, the, the airbags on the side airbags saved her. She gets out of the car and she looks at the front of the car and she goes, oh, well, that's not too bad. <laughs> then she goes around to see that there was no back end of the car left, pretty much. And that's how it is, guys. You know, we get, all of a sudden we get broadsided by the bad news. And so how do we, how do we make wise decisions in these crucial times? You know, no one knows how to better than the man who endured constant beatings and imprisonment and danger. He was always in danger, and that was the Apostle Paul. Life's inevitable intersections. You know, like Robert Frost, Paul came to a crucial fork in his life. One where he was suddenly blinded with the intersection decision to either continue persecuting Christians as he was doing or to become a Christian himself. Remember that in Acts 9? Paul chose the, the road less traveled by, the straight and the narrow path of faith in Jesus Christ. And that made all the difference, especially later on in his life, he could say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and it's for him, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It made all the difference in the world for, for Paul. Years later, in his letter to the Philippian church, the apostle Paul explained how 
he had since learned to handle life's intersections in any circumstance. This is what he says in Philippians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11. It says, I am not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. How many of you can say that? That you have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstance, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. He goes on to say, I can do everything through him who gives me strength. I can do everything through Jesus Christ who gives me strength. So whatever the intersection, Paul found Christ was always there, always willing to strengthen and guide him on his journey down the road less traveled. And I think the same is true for us today, guys. I believe it is. As we begin our study on several intersections in Christ's life and ministry, I hope and pray that we will discover how, how to make Paul's words our own words. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I hope they will become your words. Then we too will be able to look back ages and ages from now and say with a contented heart that it has made all the difference in the world for us. All the difference. So Jesus has an encounter in the very beginning of his ministry. In that encounter is with Satan the tempter. And that's where our our study begins. It's this crucial juncture in Jesus' life as recorded in Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles and you want to turn to Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11, I'm going to read that for you right now. It says this, that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I'd have been hungry after about three days. I don't know how he lasted for 40 days, but he did. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city, And had him stand on its highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and and will lift you up in his hands. So that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and the angels came and they attended him. You know, about the time Jesus turned 30, this carpenter from Galilee 
probably set his tools aside, hugged his family, and he headed to the Jordan River in Judea. Do you know what he happened there at the Jordan River? There he knew he would find a man. That man was named John the Baptist who was preparing the way for Jesus' public ministry. His, His wonderful, agonizing journey to the cross. That's what it would be. No one knew the enormity of the Messiah's journey better than Satan knew. He knew it was going to happen, nor was there anyone who wanted to stop him more than Satan. Satan didn't want him to be able to do what he was going to do. For the evil one knew that Christ's death and resurrection was going to seal his fate. He knew that. So immediately following Jesus' baptism in Matthew chapter 3, the adversary tries to devour Christ at the intersection of temptation. Notice what it says there in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. He was hungry. Wouldn't you be hungry? After 40 days and 40 nights, be hungry. Though normally used to connotate being seduced towards evil, I was looking up the, the Greek term for tempted is periazo, the word periazo in Matthew chapter 4.1. And it suggests more of the idea of being tested for the purpose of approving and affirming. Another example of this word found in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Does anybody remember the story there? It was Abraham when he was going to have to sacrifice his son Isaac on the altar there. It's that same word that's used there. And you know what? Satan is also hungry as well. Because 1 Peter 5.8 says the, the apostle Peter, Peter describes him as a roaring lion prowling about waiting to devour someone. And he wants to devour Jesus. He wants to eat him alive. And so at at this particular time, you know, that's someone that he wants to devour is Jesus. But notice that the devil, notice in this passage here, the devil doesn't attack Jesus immediately after his baptism, does he? He doesn't go after him right after his baptism. He waits until the Son of Man is alone in the wilderness and weakened from more than a month without food. Then the stalking lion pounces. How many of you have gone a day without food? Okay. How many of you have gone two days without food? Okay, some of you. How many of you have gone three days without food? Okay, some of you. Four? Five? Okay. How about ten? How about 15, 20? 40 days! I can't even imagine what it would be like going 40 days without food. You know, Satan attacks, his attacks on Christ, however, you know, 
it's not like this savage, bloody one that you see on National Geographic where the little gazelle is just jumping around and all of a sudden the lion pounces on him and eats that little gazelle alive. I can't stand to watch that. It's not like that. Definitely not like that. Eating those cute little gazelles alive. Rather, Satan is a little bit more subtle than that. They're subtle attacks. Do you know what I'm talking about? Because he does those things to us all the time. When you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall because Satan wants to subtly attack you, attempting to bring his prey down. Satan attacks Jesus subtly with three temptations, each ruthlessly designed to lure the Savior away from two things. Do you know what those two things are? His Father and His mission. Satan wants to lure Him away from the Father because if He can separate Jesus from His Father, then He has Him. And He wants to pull Him away from the mission because the mission means that He's going to go down. So the first test... I look at this as a personal nature. You know, drawing upon what God called Jesus at his baptism. What did he call Jesus at his baptism? What did he say? What's that? Yeah, this is my beloved son. God calls Jesus his beloved son. Satan dares Christ to prove his identity with an appetizing display of power. Notice what it says there in verse 3. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Tell these stones to become bread. Christ certainly has the power to accept that dare, doesn't he? He could have turned, he could have turned a mountain into bread if he wanted to. He has a, a powerful physical hunger as well. You know, so what would be wrong with turning a few stones into bread? What would be wrong with that? Everything, guys, everything would be wrong with that. Because see, hidden beneath Satan's seemingly harmless challenges, this, this snare, this, this thing to catch Jesus. The devil is testing Christ to see whether he can be lured into using his powers for a selfish purpose. Hmm. For a selfish purpose. Instead of waiting on the Father to meet his needs, can Jesus be tempted into satisfying himself, basically to do his own thing, separated from the Father? If so, then perhaps Jesus would prefer to, to feed the world rather than to die for the world. Perhaps, you know, he should be the bread king to the hungry rather than the bread of life to the lost in John chapter 6. Verse 35, but notice what it says there in verse 4. Jesus answered, and this was his answer. He said, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Wow. Wow. Have you ever been so hungry that you would eat not just the bread, but the wrapper too? 
you know, after 40 days without food, I would have eaten the heels on the bread. <laughs> How many of you like the heels of the bread? <laughs> yeah, I knew some of you would. I knew, I knew that was going to happen. Some of you would. I would even eat those after 40 days of not eating anything. Hungry as he is, Jesus passes up the tempting bread of immediate satisfaction for the more lasting food of obeying the Father. Praise the Lord that he, he was able to do that. Praise the Lord for us that he was able to do that. Satan's first intersection is bypassed. But up ahead, however, there, there looms two more, two more. So the first test is a personal one. The second test is more of a public nature. You know, history tells us that part of Herod's temple was at least 450 feet high. So perched from 45 stories high, the devil next attempts to go Jesus into showing off his identity with a sensational leap. Notice what it says there in verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point in the temple. If you are really the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You know, it all sounds so sensible, maybe even intriguing. Just imagine what a breathtaking way to inaugurate your public ministry. You know, the jump would be spectacular. Maybe even a real crowd pleaser. Woo! What a jump! What a leap! Did you see Jesus? The leaping Messiah! You know, one that would surely establish Jesus as the Messiah of the Jews expected to suddenly come down from the skies to the to the temple as Malachi chapter 3 verse 1 talks about that but Jesus isn't interested in pleasing Satan and he definitely isn't interested in pleasing the crowds with these death defying feats that's not what Jesus is all about His only concern is to please his Father in heaven. Notice what it says there in verse 7. Jesus answered, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Thank goodness we have a level-headed Savior who isn't going to fall for any of this bullcrap that Satan is throwing at him. And that's exactly what he does. And that's exactly what he does to you every single day. And we fall for it all the time. And we've got to stop doing that. We've got to follow Jesus. He is who we're supposed to follow. And he set that up for us to do that. Jesus looked Satan in the eye and said, Do not, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not. What's wrong? What's wrong with a little pinnacle jumping now and then? If it's going to demonstrate God's power, you know, it's called presumption, guys. Flirting with danger to prove power. 
in the scripture condemns it as sin. God sometimes expects his children to take risks of faith, but he never condones using sensational recklessness in order to show off divine deliverance. To do so only draws attention to ourselves instead of to God. And what it does is it creates a circus-type atmosphere where greater and greater miracles are sought after in order to hold a crowd. Ministers are noted for that. One minister in particular, you might know him. His name is Bud Yoder. Bud Yoder admitted that one day. You know when he admitted it? When he was going to have to jump out of an airplane to do to, to bring a crowd in. He said to me, he said, Bobby, you know what? I was doing all kinds of things. He, he, he sat up on the church roof for a week one time to get a bunch of people to come to his church. But he said, the thing that finally cured me of this was when I had to jump out of an airplane. <laughs> he said, I lost the bet and I had to jump out of an airplane. I said to him, I said, Bud, why in the world would you ever even make a bet like that? When have we lost sight of the fact that Christ's love should compel people to come? Not the next great thing that we're going to do, but Christ's love compels. Would Jesus have survived had he flirted with danger and jumped? Doing some pinnacle jumping? Of course he would have. His life would have been preserved But you know what? His mission would have been lost. The test was to see if he would draw all people to himself by relying on sensationalism. You know, come and see the one and only leaping miracle Messiah make his most spectacular jump yet. Can't you see it up in big lights? And the, and the, that, that circus music plan. Come and see this, this sensational leaping miracle Messiah. Or maybe Jesus would just choose the cross. Guess what Jesus did? He chose the cross. And Satan, he, did this, he decided to pull out all the stops and make a third test that was extraordinary one. That third test is of a power nature. You know, with the, with the flare of a circus ringmaster that consummate, that consummate showman Satan parades everything he has for this one last effort to woo Christ away from the cross. Notice what he says there in verses eight and nine. He says, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Remember, I just want you to remember, Jesus hadn't really begun his ministry yet. He, he doesn't even have a single follower yet. And he, he knows that the task ahead is going to be extremely difficult. But it needn't be. Satan's 
willing, you know, he, he's willing to hand him over the world. He's willing to give it to him on a silver platter. You won't have to do any suffering or any struggling or any sacrifice. Just one little compromise in this world, in, in the crown of power, it's all going to be yours. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Then what's the problem? What's the problem with all that? The problem is this, guys. It bypasses the cross. God wants his son to rule over the kingdoms of the world, not with a crown of power given by an enemy, but with a crown of thorns worn on a cross. So despite all the allure of glitter and glamour, this lone, hungry ex-carpenter from Galilee will not be swayed from obeying the Father and fulfilling his mission. And he tells Satan as much with a sure and direct command. Notice what he says there in verse 10, guys. And this was pretty direct. Jesus says, away from me. Get out of here. Get out of my sight. Away from me, Satan. For it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. That's what he tells us. Serve him only. So, what is the outcome of Jesus standing up to Satan? You know, frustrated and angry at his failure, Satan departs. And notice what it says there in verse 11. It says, Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. You know, the, the intersection of temptation he planned for Jesus turns out to be only an intersection of defeat for himself. Satan is defeated. You know, Luke also adds in his gospel account in Luke chapter 4, verse 13, he said, Luke says this, he, he adds to this gospel account that the devil didn't leave Jesus for good, but he departed from him for an, a more opportune time. That's what he was going to do. The, though the roaring lion failed to devour the Lamb of God, he doesn't give up. He doesn't even give up on Jesus. You know, the hunter simply resumed stalking watching for another time that he could pounce on him. What happens when temptation crosses our paths? What happens? You know, temptation stalks us as well. And though we may not be able to stop it from attacking us, we can resist and we can stand up under, uh, under its grip. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians. I'm gonna, I want to read that for you here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Verses 12 and 13, this is what Paul tells us. He says, so if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. No temptation has seized you except that what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you bear. But when you are tempted, he will always provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Wow. So, I want to give you, and we're almost done here, but I want to give you three practical suggestions to take with you so that you, next time temptation strikes, you will be able to stand your ground and resist the devil just as Christ did. The first one is this. Don't be alarmed, expect it. Don't be alarmed, expect it. And the more you expect temptation, the less alarmed you'll be by all its prowling and its growling. 
You know, none of us are free from its presence. You know, it roams in our mind and even in the holiest of saints, it still roams in your mind. And though none of us can actually see it or touch it, we can prepare for this invisible marauder by adopting this attitude of watchfulness. Temptations aren't nearly as dangerous when nothing they can do surprises us anymore. So what you need to do is don't be alarmed, expect it. Stay alert, stand your ground when it comes. The second one is don't be blind, detect it. So don't be alarmed, expect it. Don't be blind, detect it. You know, whether whether Satan is directly behind it or not, temptation has innumerable methods of attack, few of which are easy to detect sometimes. So again, we need to stay alert. We need to watch for the signs. We need to become these skilled trackers who can spot temptation before it strikes you. And the other thing that we need to do is we need to make sure that we don't blame God for it. Temptation comes either by Satan or by your own evil desires. James chapter 1, beginning with verse 13, says this, When tempted, no one should say, God has tempted me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Again, learn to be a master detector. Learn to follow Jesus. And then the third is this. Don't be alarmed, expect it. Don't be blind, detect it. And don't be clever. Don't try to be clever in your own thoughts. Reject it. You know, there's a name for those who flirt with temptation. You know what they're called? They're called victims. That's exactly what they're called. They're called victims. It will devour anyone who dares to toy with it. The same with any real lion. You wouldn't go up to this big lion who's four, five, or six hundred pounds and say, nice kitty, would you? Because if you did, what would happen? Your arm would go missing. And then maybe the other arm, then maybe a leg. You know, it would not be a pretty sight. Temptation is nothing. It's, it's nothing to play with. You know, you can, you can never take the killer instinct out of it and make it your pet. You just can't do that. But you can learn how to protect yourself as Christ did by meeting his enemy head on with God's word. You know, God's word, that, that's an interesting thought there. God's word. Every single one of those temptations that Satan tried to pull on Satan or on Jesus. How did Jesus counteract that? God's word. That's right. And this is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says in verse 9 and following, he says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. He says, I, I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from my, from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes. As one rejoices in great riches, 
I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees and I will not neglect your word. I will not neglect your word, Father. That's how a young man can keep his way pure. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And I think we all know that it's those little temptations that try to nibble away at our honesty and our priorities and our happiness. And I guess the question is this, you know, have you come to or are you stuck at that intersection of temptation? Are you stuck there? You know, our fall isn't usually when we commit some sin that the world sees. That's not it. Long before the hidden places of our hearts and where the intersection decisions are made, that ultimately will shape our lives. It's exactly what Mark Hall from Casting Crowns talks about in that song, Slow Fade. That's exactly what he's saying. These temptations may look small to you now, but each time you give in to them, they grow stronger and bigger and harder to tame until someday they may just eat you alive. It's nothing to mess with. Don't be alarmed, expect it. Don't be blind, detect it. But don't be clever, guys. We need to reject it. So don't turn your back on them as if they weren't there and pretend like they're not there. You need to stop them right now. That's what we need to do. And Jesus gives us the perfect example, doesn't he? So the question is this. Are you facing a particular intersection of temptation right now? Think about that. Think about your own life. Should I go right? Should I go left? Should I just stay straight? Do do you feel too weak to resist? Remember this. Christ knows what it's like to be hit with the full brunt of the enemy's attack, doesn't he? He, he, he survived Satan's hardest test. And he can strengthen you to do the same. I guarantee you that if you will just trust in him. And the writer of Hebrews offers these comforting words to us. He says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, he says, Therefore, since we have a, a great high priest who has gone through the heavens... Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Did you hear that? Did you read that? It says, then let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. You can have confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need, especially at the intersection of temptation. Two roads diverged in a wood. And I, I remembered that I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength and meets me at the intersection of temptation and he guides me to where he wants me to be. And let me tell you something, folks. That will make all the difference. That will make all the difference. King David said this. 
He said in Psalm 25, verses 4 and 5, as we read at the very beginning of all this, Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. Amen.